0: Good morning. It's a beautiful day here in Boulder. I'm always a little bit nervous when I first get up in front and so you might hear my voice quiver a little bit but I was thinking last night, uh, my son Jonathan and I watched a few minutes of the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro and while we were watching the commentator from NBC said that there were 78,000 people in that stadium last night and I was thinking wow, I'm sure glad that there's not 78,000 people here today. (laughs) It's a lot easier just to stand in front of you than it would be standing in front of that stadium. Several months ago, when we first decided to put together a series of sermons for women, Dina, Shelley, Charlene, Pastor Japheth and I, we sat around a table, and Japheth asked us all a question, and that question went something like this. If you had a young woman sitting here in front of you, what one value would you want to impart on her? For Dina, the first thing that came to her mind was the word value. And the question to her came across, what one thing would you want to tell Ellie if you had one chance? And for her, she wanted Ellie to know that she had value. She never wants her to question that she is valuable in the sight of God. For Shelley, she wanted Renee to be able to recognize her open doors, to be able to give her best yes. For me, I had to think about it a little bit because I don't have any little girls. And so instead, I thought about the little girls that come up here and sit on the steps for the children's story, and about the young women who are a little bit too old to come and sit on the steps for the children's story. But the first word that came to my mind was determination. It's a term that I am rather fond of. I liked hearing stories about strong women, about women who have come up against what seems like nearly insurmountable odds to accomplish some sort of goal. And so I think about women like Joan of Arc and Elizabeth I and Harriet Tubman and Amelia Earhart and women like that. When you look up the word determination in the dictionary, you get the following definition. Determination, a noun. A quality that makes you continue to do or to achieve something that is difficult. Hmm, something that is difficult. What would make someone want to achieve something that is difficult? My favorite Bible verse of all time is Jeremiah 29:11, and I'm going to have to apologize to you a little bit here. The Bibles that are in front of you are all the English standard version. I'm going to bounce back and forth between that version and the NIV. I'm kind of selective in which version I choose based on which wording I like better. So I will bounce back and forth. When I'm using the ESV, the page number will be up there. We do want you to keep in mind that these Bibles are for you. They are for your use. So take them out, mark them, take them home with you, share them with a friend. We get them by the case. We have plenty, so take them with you. Um, so back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. We sometimes re- hear this plan referred to by another name. We hear it referred to as a calling. Most often when we hear that someone has been called to something, we kind of automatically think about being called to the ministry. We assume that our pastors and our evangelists have been called to their work. In fact, when a pastor is offered a job, it is said that she or he has been given a call, has gotten a call. The Bible is full of stories of people who have been called by God. David, when he was called to be the king of Israel, Paul, when he was called to be an evangelist, Moses, when he was called to lead the captives out of Egypt, Samuel, when he was literally called out of his sleep, and the disciples, when they were called to drop whatever they were doing and follow Jesus, each of them was asked to do or achieve something that was difficult. Growing up, I loved the story of Queen Esther. Most little girls do. At one time or another, we all dream of being a princess or a queen, and that's exactly what happens in this story. As you will remember, you're all familiar with this story. There was a little Jewish girl named Hadassah. She was orphaned and alone, but her cousin Mordecai took her in and raised her in his home. Mordecai was a man who worked in Persia for the king of Persia at the palace gates. At some point along the way, Hadassah's name was changed from the Jewish form to the Persian name of Esther, which means star. This version of her name was apparently more befitting of her beauty, and the story goes that Esther grew up to be a lovely and engaging young woman. The king of Persia at the time was someone called Ahasuerus, also referred to as Xerxes in the history books, and he ruled over an extremely vast Um, kingdom at the time. Ahasuerus had just set aside his current queen. Her name was Vashti. We're we're told that she did something to displease him. And he either divorced her, or as it is told in some accounts, he may have actually had her executed. But in any case, he found himself in need of a new queen or in want of a new queen, And so he told his men to go to every corner of his vast kingdom to find every beautiful young woman that was deserving of competing for his love and to bring her back to his harem where they would live for a full year. During that year, they were to learn court etiquette and they were to spend their time making themselves more beautiful or more pleasing to the king. I'm not exactly sure why it was going to take a year to do that or exactly what they were doing, But in any case, we are told that at the end of the year, Ahasuerus would be choosing who he would be making his queen. Esther 2.17 tells us that at the end of the year, the king loved Esther more than all of the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is the part that all the little girls like in the story, the Cinderella part. It matches our childhood dreams of being plucked out of obscurity to become a royal queen. But upon closer inspection, we quickly realized that Esther's situation was not as glamorous or as envious as we had been taught to think. Here was a young Jewish girl who'd been raised in a Jewish household with the expectation that she would grow up to be a good Jewish wife and mother. All of a sudden, she's told that she must leave her home and all she knows and go live with 400 strangers in the palace of a king who she is likely terrified of. After all, as a Jew, she's a foreigner in this country, and the king has possibly just executed his wife So, he's probably not the nicest guy. None of the 400 women who have been installed in the king's palace are there by choice. The king has commanded it, and they will go. Esther is forced into the king's palace and, as a member of his harem, into his bed, and told that she should never let it be known that she is a Jew because if the king found out, it would likely mean her death. Like I said, Esther's reality was very far from the Cinderella story, and her new husband was certainly no Prince Charming. She must have been asking herself, how did this happen? How did I get here? What possible good can come from this mess? Now, if you'll remember how the story goes, the king's prime minister, an apparently nasty and vindictive man named Haman, decides that he needs to find a way to get rid of Esther's cousin, Mordecai. And in doing so, comes up with a very sneaky and diabolical plan. He uses King Ahasuerus' own ego to convince him to sign a decree that says in a few days, that every man, woman, and child who is Jewish living in Persia at the time can be killed. As you might imagine, as soon as Mordecai hears about this, he is devastated and terrified because everybody that he knows and loves, including Esther, the queen is in danger. And he knows that the fact that she is queen is not going to save her from this decree. As soon as someone finds out that she is a Jew, she is as dead as the rest of them. So Mordecai decides that it is best for Esther to go to the king and to plead for their lives. He sends a message to her asking her to do this. But Esther knows that going to, the queen, going to the king is out of the question. Esther reminds Mordecai of what everyone in the realm knows. The king has one very strict rule. And that is that no one is allowed to enter the inner court uninvited. This king is extremely serious about security. The only one exception to this rule is that the king may hold out his scepter to someone who comes in uninvited and spare their life. However, she knows that even she, as queen, will be killed on the spot if she goes to him uninvited and he doesn't hold out that scepter. She is terrified, and rightfully so, because it's been nearly a month since she has been invited to see her husband. But here's the important part. Mordecai pleads with Esther to do the difficult thing and to go before the king anyway, telling her, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it is her call. Now she's realizing why she was made queen when it seemed so improbable that he would pick her out of 399 other women in that harem. Esther, her maids, and all of the Jewish people in Persia fast and pray for three days. And at the end of the three days, Esther dresses in her most becoming outfit, her maids style her hair, she puts on her most expensive perfume, and she takes her life and theirs into her hands, and walks uninvited before the king. You will also likely remember how the story ends, and fortunately for Esther, it ends happily. King Ahasuerus is actually very happy to see his wife and holds out the scepter to her. Esther and the Jews are both saved. Mordecai is actually promoted to prime minister, and Haman meets a violent end for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Like I mentioned earlier, when we hear the term calling, we most often associate associate it with a call to the ministry or a call to evangelism or a call to the mission field. But calling may be associated with many different kinds of work. In fact, the term vocation, which means a strong feeling of suitability for a particular career or occupation, comes from the Latin meaning a call. And some do truly feel called to their work. I've always considered myself pretty lucky in that I knew what I was gonna be when I grew up from a very young age. My parents tell a story about when I was five, I suddenly declared that I was gonna be a doctor. I attribute some of my ability to choose that at a very early age to my dad, who, when I was a toddler, found himself studying for gross anatomy when he was in dental school. He and his best friend thought it might be funny to try to teach a toddler to say an anatomical term, and they spent who knows how long teaching me to say the term superior cerebellar peduncle. (laughs) Now, I didn't actually know what that meant or learn about it, until I was studying neurobiology in college. And for those of you that are wondering, it refers to a structure that connects the uh, cerebellum to the midbrain, but mostly it was just a fun term to teach a toddler to say. My dad says that I practiced that term over and over and over again, determined to get it right. And it was not long after that that I decided or I declared that I was going to be a doctor. It never occurred to me that I would not reach that goal. It never occurred to me that there was any other calling for me in this life. It never occurred to me until I started to receive the rejection letters the first time that I applied to medical school. I will never forget the feeling of opening those envelopes, envelope after envelope, and reading that each of those schools who held the promise of what I was sure was my calling, telling me that my dream would not be coming true. Despite my determination, I would not be growing up to be a doctor. How could this happen? How did I get here? How could I have been so mistaken? My bitter disappointment at those rejection letters gives me a very small window into what I imagine that Hannah must have felt And as a mother, her story makes my heart ache. We first meet Hannah in 1 Samuel, where we're told that she is one of two wives of Elkanah, a man who lives in the hill country of Ephraim. Elkanah's first wife has been able to give him children, but Hannah has so far been unable to get pregnant. As you'll remember from your Bible classes, and it's still this way in a lot of places around the world, It was not only the woman's job to take care of the household, but her worth was very much tied up in being able to have children. Specifically, to be able to conceive a son. In her culture, every woman felt that it was her job, her calling, to be a mother. And those who were unable to achieve motherhood, for whatever reason, were felt to be cursed. Now we're told that despite the fact that Hannah had been unable to provide Elkanah with a son, that he loved his wife very much and he was actually a very doting husband. However, her sister wife used this opportunity to make her miserable and to keep reminding her that she was failing. In her desperation on their annual trip to the temple, Hannah went to the temple and prayed so earnestly that she wept. She promised the Lord then and there that if she were to be blessed with a child, that she would give that child back to the Lord in his service for the child's entire life. I like to imagine that she also prayed the prayer, Lord, if this is not my calling, please let me know what is. Her prayer was so fervent and her anguish was so palpable that priest Eli actually took note of her and thought that... This fervent prayer that she was praying was the ranting of a drunk woman. Once they finally got over their initial miscommunication that she was indeed extremely sober, he was very impressed by her fervor. And he assured her that the Lord had indeed heard her prayer. And sure enough, by the next year, she had given birth to Samuel. Now we'll have to talk about Samuel some other time. But we do know that Hannah stayed very true to her promise, and she brought Samuel back to serve in the temple when he was just a toddler. As a mother, I've always hated that part of the story. I cannot imagine parting with a child, especially a child that I had prayed so fervently for. I have often wondered how on earth she could have possibly done that. But what if the years she spent hoping and praying for a son We're part of the plan. What if receiving your call has to happen at the right time, no matter how determined you are to make it happen now? What if God expects us to be patient? Consider this. What if Hannah becoming a mother wasn't the calling or wasn't the entire thing? What if giving her son back to God was? Hannah believed that motherhood was her calling, but growing up, I can't say that I necessarily saw motherhood as a calling, per se. I saw it more as something that you just did. You grew up, you got married, you had kids. It was just what was expected of you. A pastor, an evangelist, a teacher, a doctor, or nurse, yeah, those were people that were called to their work. But my mom, nah, she wasn't called to that. That's just something that you do. You're a girl, you have kids. Boy, was I wrong. In fact, it turns out that in my opinion, the greatest example of a calling of all time was exactly that, the call to be a mother. And the Virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We usually only study the story at Christmas time, so it feels strange to tell it in August. But bear with me here. Imagine that a young girl named Mary, who was no more than a teenager at the time, sees an angel standing before her. I imagine that seeing an angel stand, standing, in, standing there was in and of itself a pretty jarring experience. Once she gets over the initial shock of seeing the angel standing there, she hears that angel telling her that because she has found favor with God, she will become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, I just read a quote that says, she was greatly troubled at the saying, and I think greatly troubled was likely an understatement. Here was a very young girl who, first of all, has been startled just by the presence of an angel, and she fairly quickly realizes that he is telling her something that should be impossible. After all, she's a virgin. And once that, and once she gets over the shock of that, she quickly realizes that she has another problem because we are told that she is betrothed or engaged. She quickly realizes that she's going to have to go home. She's going to have to tell her father. She's going to have to tell her fiance. She's going to have to tell her family. I don't know about you ladies, but the thought of disappointing my dad kept me out of a lot of trouble when I was Mary's age. And if I were her, I would have been dreading that. She has been called to do something difficult. It's certainly fantastic that God has chosen a teenager to bear his son. But I think one of the most fantastic things for me about this story is Mary's reaction. She does not react like I would. She does not run screaming from the room. She does not have a panic attack and start hyperventilating. She does not order the angel to leave. She does not get on her knees and beg God to choose someone else. Instead, she says in Luke 1.38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She says, okay, you have called me, and I will do it. We're not told if she hesitated or asked for any time to think about it. All we know is that when she received her call, she not only answered it, but she determined to see it through, no matter how difficult, no matter the personal cost. And we know that the personal cost was extremely great. She did have to go home and tell her fiance. She did have to go home and tell her dad. She answered the call and she not only gave birth to the Messiah, but she raised him and she loved him. She was there when he was 12 years old and talking to the priests in front of the temple. She was there on the day that he performed his first miracle, and she was there the day that they nailed her son to the cross. She answered her call, and she was determined to see it through. And you say, yeah, that's amazing. Mary was certainly amazing, but I haven't been called to do anything specific. I'm not going to save my people from destruction. I'm not going to give my baby to Pastor Japhet to raise at the church, and I am certainly not raising the Messiah. I'm not called to be a pastor or a missionary. I hate the sight of blood so that whole doctor thing is out. I don't really feel determined about much of anything. But have you considered that maybe you've been called just to be you? I ran across a sermon by an author and Methodist pastor, Ann Robertson, not long ago, where she likens our calling to an actual phone call. She says that it's not that God is putting out a general call. He doesn't call a random payphone and hope that somebody walking by picks it up. Some of the kids in here don't even know what a payphone is. Instead, God is calling us on our cell phone. He reaches out to us specifically, and he prepares us to answer the call, just like he did for Esther and for Hannah and for Mary. Not only does he have a plan, he prepares us for the plan. Like Dina taught us, God values each of us for who we are, and the gifts that he has given to us are unique to each one of us. Romans 126 to eight says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man or woman's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Not too long ago in the kindergarten Sabbath school, we were studying the story of the barley loaves and the fishes. You know that story because just like the other ones I've told you, it's in this book. If this book doesn't look familiar to you, I'd be surprised, most of us grew up with these, and if you don't have this set of books, you need them, or a kid in your life needs them. But back to our story, which is important enough to actually be told by four different authors. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have versions of this story. In the story, we are told that Jesus was attempting to find a bit of solitude, but that instead, he was followed by a large group of people. Matthew puts that number of people at 5,000, but as you know, they never count the women and children, so we can safely assume that it's at least double that. Jesus spent the whole day teaching and telling stories to this throng of people who had apparently not planned ahead to stay the whole day because they were all completely unprepared and nobody had thought to bring any food. In John's version of the story, Jesus tells Philip to go and buy bread for everyone, wherein Philip says to him, 200 denarii, which apparently is a lot of money, would not be enough to buy even one bite of bread for all of these people. A small boy, we don't even know his name, had brought with him a lunch of five barley loaves and two fishes. Andrew, sarcastically, I think, holds up a little basket and says, hey, we've got some barley loaves and fishes here. I can just hear the disciples laughing at the thought that this tiny little lunch can do anything to help with the hunger of upwards of 10,000 people. But the boy gives his lunch to Jesus anyway, and we're told that Jesus takes that little lunch and multiplies it. And once they have fed every single person that is there until they are completely full, we're told that they clean up the scraps and they clean up 12 entire baskets of scraps. As amazing as this story is, when I was preparing for the kindergartners, it occurred to me that all four authors left out one very important person. But fortunately, my Bible friends didn't. <laughs> Into a basket, little lad's mother put five barley loaves and two small fishes. She gave the basket to little lad to take with him on his long walk by the lake. In all the years that I have heard this story, I never even noticed the one person besides Jesus that made this miracle possible. Do you see that person? It's the little boy's mother. Now, I don't think that little lad's mother got up that morning thinking she was doing anything particularly special. She carried out her usual routine. She fixed breakfast for her family, made sure that little lad's face was washed and his hair was combed, and made sure that he was wearing clean underwear before he left for the day. Those things are important to us mothers. She packed his lunch, possibly with leftovers from supper the night before, like she did every single day, like I do for my boys every single day. The only thing that she was called to do that day was to be a good mom. And the only thing that she was determined about was making sure that her son had a healthy lunch. Jesus used her routine, her everyday, her simple lunch to perform a miracle that was so impressive that it is covered in four books of the Bible and we don't even know her name. This story reminds me of the lyrics to a song we teach our kids. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. It doesn't have to be much. It's one of the favorite songs in the kindergarten class because they get to turn out the lights and they get to shine the flashlights around the room. They love that song. And it's also a song that's very special to my family. I'm gonna show you a picture of some very cute little girls. According to the writing on the edge of this photo, the girls were three years old in the picture. I'm lucky to have this picture because there's not much of a record of these girls' early years. In fact, there's not even a birth certificate, just an entry in a worn family Bible. The girls were born in rural North Carolina in 1924. They just turned 92 years old a couple weeks ago. The twins, born quite premature, were not expected to survive. They spent their first few months in the hospital receiving round-the-clock care, from a group of dedicated nurses who eventually named them Carolina and Virginia, either for the two closest states or because that was where two of the nurses are from. We're not sure the actual story on that. Carolina is my grandmother, but please don't ask me to tell you which one of them she is in the photo. I can't tell. Those of us who grew up down south often ran around without shoes for most of the year. But in this case, their bare feet are because there was no money for shoes. And the broken door in the background speaks a little bit about what their childhood was like. Neither of them will speak much about what it was like growing up, but they have occasionally spoken about moving from place to place when the family couldn't afford the rent. And as two of four daughters with a mother who became their sole support after their father disappeared, they knew what it was like to go hungry. In fact, it was through their hunger that they found Jesus in the Salvation Army Church where they learned about salvation over a hot meal. To this day, my great-aunt Virginia spends most of her time volunteering at the Salvation Army, passing on the blessing that the church gave to her. My grandmother became an Adventist as a young woman and raised five kids, who are all miraculously still in the church, though not a one of them can pass the Salvation Army kettle at Christmas time without throwing something in. Excuse me. She and my grandfather led Pathfinders for many years. They helped to raise their large extended Southern family, and she's still a fixture at the Daytona Beach Seventh-day Adventist Church. When the twins turned 90, we had a big party for them and celebrated two women who have given their lives to service and by their quiet love have shared the light of Jesus to hundreds of people along the way. As part of the tribute on their birthday, we marked a map of the world with a string of Christmas lights, a bulb in each of the places where a member of our family had served in either short- or long-term mission projects around the world. In total, their eight children, 18 grandchildren, and 22 great-grandchildren have served in 39 countries around the world. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. First, they were determined just to survive, and then they were called to serve their families their churches and their communities. They were determined to create a better world for their children and they sent not only their own children but many others out into the world with a little basket lunch and let Jesus do the rest. It was not an easy thing to suffer the rejection of all those medical schools that I applied to, especially since it did not happen just once. And I think, as all of these great women must have at one time or another, I doubted my calling. Sometimes I wondered if the connection between me and God had gotten messed up or if I just completely mistook his message. But I also learned that things happen in God's own time, according to his own plan. Esther certainly had to learn about God's timing, and Hannah knew as much about anyone as uh, patience. It turned out that maybe I wasn't so wrong about my calling, after all, and my grandmother, who taught me about determination and timing and faithfulness and calling, was there with me on the day, excuse me, that I finally accepted my medical school diploma. I think that our vocation, our calling, also changes with time, and I don't think that we're called to do just one thing. I still believe very firmly that medicine is my calling. It's very much a part of who I am, and I love my work. But I have also been called to be a wife to my husband and a mother to my boys to pack lunches and to make sure they all have clean underwear. I've been called to serve this church and this community and our school. These last ones I didn't necessarily see coming and I may be surprised what I'm called to do in the future. My grandmother is no longer raising her children or leading out in Pathfinders, but instead at 92, she's still working as a cashier at the dollar store in Ormond Beach, Florida where she's known for her work ethic, her quiet manner, and her ready smile. Though her call has changed, she's still answering it. And I hope that I will always do the same. Back to Japheth's original question, what one value would I impart on a young woman in front of me? Determination. Determination to answer the call, not worried about how, or why, or when, Allowing for his timing and his plan, just being willing to answer, knowing that he will give me the tools, the circumstances that I need to do whatever he asks, even if it's difficult. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future.